Chapter Eleven of Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Denise Nordell. Abraham Lincoln: A History, Volume Two by John Hay and John George Nicolay. Chapter Eleven: Harper's Ferry there now occurred another strange event which if it had been specially designed as a climax for the series of great political sensations since eighteen fifty two could scarcely have been more dramatic this was john brown's invasion of harper's ferry in order to create a slave insurrection we can only understand the transaction as far as we can understand the man and both remain somewhat enigmatical of puritan descent john brown was born in connecticut in the year eighteen hundred when he was five years old the family moved to ohio at that time a comparative wilderness here he grew up a strong vigorous boy of the woods his father taught him the tanner's trade but a restless disposition drove him to frequent changes of scene and effort when he grew to manhood he attempted surveying he became a divinity student he tried farming and tanning in pennsylvania and tanning and speculating in real estate in ohio Cattle-dealing was his next venture, from this to sheep-raising, and by a natural transition to the business of a wool-factor in Massachusetts. This not succeeding, he made a trip to Europe. Returning, he accepted from Garrett Smith a tract of mountain land in the Adirondacks, where he proposed to found and foster colonies of free Negroes. This undertaking proved abortive, like all his others, and he once more went back to the wool-business in Ohio twice married nineteen children had been born to him of whom eleven were living when in eighteen fifty four the kansas nebraska bill plunged the country into the heat of political strife four of his sons moved away to the new territory in the first rush of emigrants several others went later when the border ruffian hostilities broke out john brown followed with money and arms contributed in the north with his sons as a nucleus he gathered a little band of fifteen to twenty adventurers and soon made his name a terror in the lawless guerrilla warfare of the day his fighting was of the prevailing type justifiable if at all only on the score of defensive retaliation and some of his acts were as criminal and atrocious as the worst of those committed by the border ruffians his losses one son murdered another wounded to the death and a third rendered insane from cruel treatment are scarcely compensated by the transitory notoriety he gathered in a few foolhardy skirmishes these varied experiences give us something of a clue to his character a strong will great physical energy sanguine fanatical temperament unbounded courage and little wisdom crude visionary ideality the inspiration of biblical precepts and old testament hero worship and ambition curbed to irritation by the hard fetters of labor privation and enforced endurance in association habit language and conduct he was clean but coarse honest but rude in disposition he mingled the sacrificing tenderness with the sacrificial sternness of his prototypes in jewish history he could lay his own child on the altar without a pang the strongest element of his character was religious fanaticism taught from earliest childhood to fear god and keep his commandments he believed firmly in the divine authenticity of the bible and memorized much of its contents his favorite texts became literal and imperative mandates he came to feel that he bore the commission and enjoyed the protection of the almighty in his kansas camps he prayed and saw visions believed he wielded the sword of the lord and of gideon had faith that the angels encompassed him 
he desired no other safeguard than his own ideas of justice and his own convictions of duty these ideas and convictions however refused obedience to accepted laws and morals and were mere fantastic and pernicious outgrowths of his religious fanaticism his courage partook of the recklessness of insanity he did not count odds what are five to one he asked and at another time he said one man in the right ready to die will chase a thousand perhaps he even believed he held a charmed life for he boasted that he had been fired at thirty times and only his hair had been touched in personal appearance he was tall and slender with rather a military bearing he had an impressive half persuasive half commanding manner he was always very secretive affected much mystery in movements came and went abruptly was direct and dogmatic to bluntness in his conversation his education was scant his reading limited he wrote strong phrases in bad orthography if we may believe the intimations from himself and those who knew him best he had not only acquired a passionate hatred of the institution of slavery but had for twenty years nursed the longing to become a liberator of slaves in the southern states to this end he read various stories of insurrections and meditated on the vicissitudes chances and strategy of partisan warfare a year's border fighting in kansas not only suddenly put thought into action but his personal and family sacrifices intensified his visionary ambition into a stern and inflexible purpose it is impossible to trace exactly how and when the harper's ferry invasion first took practical shape in john brown's mind but the indications are that it grew little by little out of his kansas experience his earliest collisions with the border ruffians occurred the spring and summer of eighteen fifty six in the autumn of that year the united states troops dispersed his band and generally suppressed the civil war in january eighteen fifty seven we find him in the eastern states appealing for arms and supplies to various committees and in various places alleging that he desired to organize and equip a company of one hundred minutemen who were mixed up with the people of kansas but who should be ready on call to rush to the defense of freedom this appeal only partly succeeded from one committee he obtained authority as agent over certain arms stored in iowa the custody and control of which had been in dispute from another committee he obtained a portion of the clothing he desired from still other sources he received certain monies but not sufficient for his requirements two circumstances however indicate that he was practicing a deception upon the committees and public he entered into a contract with a blacksmith in collinsville connecticut to manufacture him one thousand pikes of a certain pattern to be completed in ninety days and paid five hundred fifty dollars on the contract there is no record that he mentioned this matter to any committee his proposed kansas minutemen were only to be one hundred in number and the pikes could not be for them his explanation to the blacksmith that they would be a good weapon of defense for kansas settlers was clearly a subterfuge these pikes ordered about march twenty third eighteen fifty seven were without doubt intended for his virginia invasion and in fact the identical lot finished after long delay under the same contract were shipped to him in september eighteen fifty nine and were actually used in his harper's ferry attempt the other circumstance is that about the time of his contract for the pikes he also without the knowledge of committees or friends engaged an adventurer named forbes to go west and give military instruction to his company a measure neither useful nor practicable for kansas defense 
these two acts may be taken as the first preparation for harper's ferry but merely to conceive great enterprises is not to perform them and every after-step of john brown reveals his lamentable weakness and utter inadequacy for the heroic role to which he fancied himself called his first blunder was in divulging all his plans to forbes an utter stranger while he was so careful in concealing them from others forbes as ambitious and reckless as himself of course soon quarrelled with him and left him and endeavoured first to supplant and then betray him meanwhile little by little brown gathered one coloured and six white confederates from among his former followers in kansas and assembled them for drill and training in iowa four others joined him there these together with his son owen counted all told a band of twelve persons engaged for and partly informed of his purpose he left them there for instruction during the first three months of the year eighteen fifty eight while he himself went east to procure means at the beginning of february eighteen fifty eight john brown became and remained for about a month a guest at the house of frederick douglas in rochester new york immediately on his arrival there he wrote to a prominent boston abolitionist t w higginson i now want to get for the perfecting of by far the most important undertaking of my whole life from five hundred to eight hundred dollars within the next sixty days i have written rev theodore parker george l stearns and f b sanborn esquires on the subject correspondence and mutual requests for a conference ensued and finally these boston friends sent sanborn to the house of garrett smith in peterborough new york where a meeting had been arranged sanborn was a young man of twenty-six just graduated from college who as secretary of various massachusetts committees had been the active agent for sending contributions to kansas he arrived on the evening of washington's birthday february twenty second eighteen fifty eight and took part in a council of conspiracy of which john brown was the moving will and chief actor brown began by reading to the council a long document which he had drafted since his stay in rochester it called itself a provisional constitution and ordinances for the people of the united states which as it explained looked to no overthrow of states or dissolution of the union but simply to amendment and repeal it was not in any sense a reasonable project of government but simply an ill-jointed outline of rules for a proposed slave insurrection the scheme so far as any comprehension of it may be gleaned from the various reports which remain was something as follows somewhere in the virginia mountains he would raise the standard of revolt and liberation enthusiasts would join him from the free states and escaped blacks come to his help from canada from virginia and the neighboring slave states of north carolina south carolina georgia tennessee and kentucky fugitive slaves with their families would flock to his camps he would take his supplies provisions and horses by force from the neighboring plantations money plate watches and jewelry would constitute a liberal safety or intelligence fund for arms he had two hundred sharps rifles and two hundred revolvers with which he would arm his best marksmen his ruder followers and even the women and children he would arm with pikes to defend the fortifications he would construct defences of palisades and earthworks he would use natural strongholds find secret mountain passes to connect one with another retreat from and evade attacks he could not overcome he would maintain and indefinitely prolong a guerrilla war of which the seminole indians in florida and the negroes in haiti afforded examples 
with success he would enlarge the area of his occupation so as to include arable valleys and lowlands bordering the allegheny range in the slave states and here he would colonize govern and educate the blacks he had freed and maintain their liberty he would make captures and reprisals confiscate property take hold and exchange prisoners and especially white hostages and exchange them for slaves to liberate he would recognize neutrals make treaties exercise humanity prevent crime repress immorality and observe all established laws of war success would render his revolt permanent and in the end through amendment and repeal abolish slavery if at the worst he were driven from the mountains he would retreat with his followers through the free states to canada he had twelve recruits drilling in iowa and a half-executed contract for one thousand pikes in connecticut furnish him eight hundred dollars in money and he would begin operations in may this if we supply continuity and arrangement to his vagaries must have been approximately what he felt or dreamily saw and outlined in vigorous words to his auditors his listening friends were dumbfounded at the audacity as well as heartsick at the hopelessness of such an attempt they pointed out the almost certainty of failure and destruction and attempted to dissuade him from the mad scheme but to no purpose they saw they were dealing with a foregone conclusion he had convoked them not to advise as to methods but to furnish the means all reasonable argument he met with his rigid dogmatic formulas his selected proverbs his favorite texts of scripture the following preserved by various witnesses as samples of his sayings at other times indicate his reasoning on this occasion give a slave a pike and you make him a man i would not give sharps rifles to more than ten men in a hundred and then only when they have learned to use them a ravine is better than a plain woods and mountain sides can be held by resolute men against ten times their force nat turner with fifty men held virginia five weeks the same number well organized and armed can shake the system out of the state a few men in the right and knowing they are right can overturn a king twenty men in the alleghanies could break slavery to pieces in two years if god be for us who can be against us except the lord keep the city the watchman waketh but in vain one of the participants relates that when the agitated party broke up their council for the night it was perfectly plain that brown could not be held back from his purpose the discussion of the friends on the second day february twenty third was therefore only whether they should aid him or oppose him or remain indifferent against every admonition of reason mere personal sympathy seems to have carried a decision in favor of the first of these alternatives you see how it is said the chief counsellor garrett smith our dear old friend has made up his mind to this course and cannot be turned from it we cannot give him up to die alone we must support him brown has left an exact statement of his own motive and expectation in a letter to sanborn on the following day i have only had this one opportunity in a life of nearly sixty years god has honored but comparatively a very small part of mankind with any possible chance for such mighty and soul-satisfying rewards i expect nothing but to endure hardness but i expect to effect a mighty conquest even though it be like the last victory of samson nine days later brown went to boston where the conspiracy was enlarged and strengthened by the promises and encouragements of a little coterie of radical abolitionists within the next two months the funds he desired were contributed and sent him meanwhile brown returned west and moved his company of recruits from iowa by way of chicago and detroit to the town of chatham in canada west arriving there about the first of may 
by written invitations brown here called together what is described as a quiet convention of the friends of freedom to perfect his organization on the eighth of may eighteen fifty eight they held a meeting with closed doors there being present the original company of ten or eleven white members and one colored whom brown had brought with him and a somewhat miscellaneous gathering of negro residents of canada some sort of promise of secrecy was mutually made then john brown in a speech laid his plan before the meeting one delaney a colored doctor in a response promised the assistance of all the colored people in canada the provisional constitution drafted by brown at rochester was read and adopted by articles and about forty-five persons signed their names to the constitution for the proscribed and oppressed races of the united states two days afterwards the meeting again convened for the election of officers john brown was elected commander-in-chief by acclamation other members were by the same summary method appointed secretary of war secretary of state secretary of the treasury and two of them members of congress the election of a president was prudently postponed this chatham convention cannot claim consideration as a serious deliberative proceeding john brown was its sole life and voice the colored canadians were nothing but spectators the ten white recruits were mere kansas adventurers mostly boys in years and waifs in society perhaps depending largely for livelihood on the employment or bounty precarious as it was of their leader upon this reckless drifting material the strong despotic will emotional enthusiasm and mysterious rhapsodical talk of john brown exercised an irresistible fascination he drew them by easy gradations into his confidence and conspiracy the remaining element john brown's son in the chatham meeting and other sons and relatives in the harper's ferry attack are of course but the long educated instruments of the father's thought and purpose with funds provided with his plan of government accepted and himself formally appointed commander-in-chief brown doubtless thought his campaign about to begin it was however destined to an unexpected interruption the discarded and disappointed adventurer forbes had informed several prominent republicans in washington city that brown was mediating an unlawful enterprise and the boston committee warned that certain arms in brown's custody which had been contributed for kansas defense were about to be flagrantly misused dared not incur the public odium of complicity in such a deception and breach of faith the Chatham organization was scarcely completed when Brown received word from the Boston committee that he must not use the arms, the 200 Sharps rifles and 200 revolvers, which had been entrusted to him for any other purpose than for the defense of Kansas. Brown hurried to Boston, but oral consultation with his friends confirmed the necessity for postponement, and it was arranged that, to lull suspicion, he should return to Kansas and await a more favorable opportunity he yielded assent and that fall and winter performed the exploit of leading an armed foray into missouri and carrying away eleven slaves to canada an achievement which while to a certain degree it placed him in the attitude of a public outlaw nevertheless greatly increased his own and his followers confidence in the success of his general plan gradually the various obstacles melted away kansas became pacified the adventurer forbes faded out of sight and importance the disputed sharps rifles and revolvers were transferred from committee to committee and finally turned over to a private individual to satisfy a debt he in turn delivered them to brown without any hampering conditions the connecticut blacksmith finished and shipped the thousand pikes the contributions from the boston committee swelled from one to several thousands of dollars 
the recruits with a few changes though scattered in various parts of the country were generally held to their organization and promise and slightly increased in number the provisional constitution and sundry blank commissions were surreptitiously printed and captains and lieutenants appointed by the signature of john brown commander-in-chief countersigned by the secretary of war gradually also the commander-in-chief resolved on an important modification of his plan that instead of plunging at once into the virginia mountains he would begin by the capture of the united states armory and arsenal at harper's ferry two advantages seemed to have vaguely suggested themselves to his mind as likely to arise from this course the possession of a large quantity of government arms and the widespread panic and moral influence of so bold an attempt but it nowhere appears that he had any conception of the increased risk and danger it involved or that he adopted the slightest precaution to meet them harper's ferry was a town of five thousand inhabitants lying between the slave states of maryland and virginia at the confluence of the potomac and the shenandoah rivers where the united streams flow through a picturesque gap in the single mountain range called the blue ridge the situation possesses none of the elements which would make it a defensible fastness for protracted guerrilla warfare such as was contemplated in brown's plan the mountains are everywhere approachable without difficulty are pierced by roads and farms in all directions contain few natural resources for sustenance defense or concealment are easily observed or controlled from the plain by superior forces the town is irregular compact and hilly a bridge across each stream connects it with the opposite shores and the government factory and buildings which utilized the water-power of the potomac lay in the lowest part of the point of land between the streams the baltimore and ohio railroad crosses the potomac bridge on the fourth of july eighteen fifty nine john brown under an assumed name with two sons and another follower appeared near harper's ferry and soon after rented the kennedy farm in maryland five miles from town where he made a pretense of cattle dealing and mining but in reality collected secretly his rifles revolvers ammunition pikes blankets tents and miscellaneous articles for a campaign his rather eccentric actions and the irregular coming and going of occasional strangers at his cabin created no suspicion in the neighborhood cautiously increasing his supplies and gathering his recruits he appointed the attack for the twenty fourth of october but for some unexplained reason fear of treachery it is vaguely suggested he precipitated his movement in advance of that date from this point the occurrences exhibit no foresight or completeness of preparation no diligent pursuit of an intelligent plan nor skill to devise momentary expedients only a blind impulse to act on sunday evening october sixteenth eighteen fifty nine brown gave his final orders humanely directing his men to take no life where they could avoid it placing a few pikes and other implements in his one-horse wagon he started with his company of eighteen followers at eight o'clock in the evening leaving five men behind they cut the telegraph wires on the way and reached harper's ferry about eleven o'clock he himself broke open the armory gates took the watchmen prisoners and made that place his headquarters separating his men into small detachments he took possession of and attempted to hold the two bridges the arsenal and the rifle factory next he sent six of his men five miles into the country to bring in several prominent slave owners and their slaves this was accomplished before daylight and all were brought as prisoners to brown at the armory with them they also brought a large four-horse farm wagon which he now sent to transfer arms from the kennedy farm to a schoolhouse on the maryland side of the potomac about one mile from the town 
meanwhile about midnight of sunday they detained the railroad train three hours but finally allowed it to proceed a negro porter was shot on the bridge the town began to be alarmed citizens were captured at various points and brought to swell the number of prisoners at the armory counting forty or fifty by morning still not until daylight and even until the usual hour of rising on monday morning did the town comprehend the nature and extent of the trouble what now did brown intend to do what result did he look for from his movement thus far amid his conflicting acts and contradictory explanations the indications seemed clear only on two or three points both he and his men gave everybody to understand without reserve that they had come not to kill whites but only to liberate slaves soon also he placed pikes in the hands of his black prisoners but that ceremony did not make soldiers of them as his favorite maxim taught they held them in their hands with listless indifference remaining themselves as before an encumbrance instead of a reinforcement he gave his white prisoners notice that he would hold them as hostages and informed one or two that after daylight he would exchange them for slaves before the general fighting began he endeavored to effect an armistice or compromise with the citizens to stop bloodshed on condition that he be permitted to hold the armory and retain the liberated negroes all this warrants the inference that he expected to hold the town first by the effect of terror secondly by the display of leniency and kindness and supposed that he could remain indefinitely and dictate terms at his leisure the fallacy of this scheme became quickly apparent as the day dawned upon the town and the truth upon the citizens his situation in a military point of view was already hopeless eighteen men against perhaps one thousand adults and these eighteen scattered in four or five different squads without means of mutual support communication or even contingent orders gradually as the startled citizens became certain of the insignificant numbers of the assailants an irregular street firing broke out between brown sentinels and individuals with firearms the alarm was carried to neighboring towns and killed and wounded on both sides augmented the excitement tradition rather than definite record asserts that some of brown's lieutenants began to comprehend that they were in a trap and advised him to retreat nearly all his eulogists have assumed that such was his original plan and his own subsequent excuses hint at this intention but the claim is clearly untenable he had no means of defensive retreat no provisions no transportation for his arms and equipage no supply of ammunition the suggestion is an evident afterthought whether from choice or necessity however he remained only to find himself more and more closely pressed by monday noon the squad in the rifle works distant one mile from the armory had been driven out killed and captured the other squads not so far from their leader joined him at the armory minus their losses already he was driven to take refuge with his diminished force in the engine-house a low strong brick building in the armory yard where they barricaded doors and improvised loopholes and into which they took with them ten selected prisoners as hostages but the expedient was one of desperation by this movement brown literally shut himself up in his own prison from which escape was impossible a desultory fire was kept up through doors and loopholes but now the whole country had become thoroughly aroused and sundry military companies from neighboring towns and counties poured into harper's ferry brown himself at length realized the hopelessness of his position and parleyed for leave to retreat across the river on condition of his giving up his prisoners but it was too late 
President Buchanan also took prompt measures, and on Monday night a detachment of 80 Marines from the Washington Navy Yard, under the command of Brevet Colonel Robert E. Lee of the United States Army, the same who afterwards became the principal leader of the Confederate armies in the rebellion, reached the scene of action, and were stationed in the armory yard so as to cut off the insurgents from all retreat. At daylight on Tuesday morning, Brown was summoned to surrender at discretion, but he refused. The instant the officer left the engine house, a storming party of Marines battered in the doors. In five minutes, the conflict was over. One Marine was shot dead in the assault. Brown fell under severe sword and bayonet wounds. Two of his sons lay dead or dying, and four or five of his men were made prisoners, only two remaining unhurt. The great scheme of liberation built up through nearly three years of elaborate conspiracy and designed to be executed in defiance of law by individual enterprise with pikes, rifles, forts, guerrilla war, prisoners, hostages, and plunder was, after an experimental campaign of thirty-six hours, in utter collapse. Of Brown's total force of twenty-two men, ten were killed, five escaped, and seven were captured, tried, and hanged. Of the townspeople, five had been killed and eight wounded. While John Brown's ability for military leadership was too insignificant even for comment, his moral and personal courage compelled the admiration of his enemies. Arraigned before a Virginia court, the authorities hurried through his trial for treason, conspiracy, and murder with an unseemly precipitancy, almost calculated to make him seem the accuser and the commonwealth the trembling culprit. He acknowledged his acts with frankness, defended his purpose with a sincerity that betokened honest conviction, bore his wounds, and met his fate with a manly fortitude. Eight years before, he had written in a document organizing a band of colored people in Springfield, Massachusetts, to resist the fugitive slave law. Nothing so charms the American people as personal bravery. The trial for life of one bold and to some extent successful man for defending his rights in good earnest would arouse more sympathy throughout the nation than the accumulated wrongs and sufferings of more than three millions of our submissive colored population. Even now, when mere quixotic knight-errantry and his own positive violation of the rights and individuals and society had put his life in forfeit, this sympathy for his boldness and misfortune came to him in large measure. Questioned by Governor Wise, Senator Mason, and Representative Vallandigham about his accomplices, he refused to say anything except about what he had done, and freely took upon himself the whole responsibility. He was so warped by his religious training as to have become a fatalist as well as a fanatic. All our actions, he said to one who visited him in prison, even all the follies that led to this disaster were decreed to happen ages before the world was made perverted Calvinistic philosophy is the key which unlocks the mystery of Brown's life and deeds. He was convicted, sentenced, and hanged on the 2nd of December. Congress met a few days afterwards, and the Senate appointed an investigating committee to inquire into the seizure of the United States Armory and Arsenal. The long and searching examination of many witnesses brought out with sufficient distinctness the varied personal plottings of Brown, but failed to reveal that half a dozen radical abolition clergymen of Boston were party to the conspiracy, nor did they then or afterwards justify their own conduct by showing that Christ ever counseled treason, abetted conspiracy, or led rebellion against established government. From beginning to end, the whole act was reprehensible and fraught with evil result. Modern civilization and republican government require that beyond the self-defense necessary to the protection of life and limb, all coercive reforms shall act by authority of law only. 
upon politics the main effect of the harper's ferry incident was to aggravate the temper and increase the bitterness of all parties jefferson davis of mississippi mason of virginia and fitch of indiana democratic members of the senate investigating committee sought diligently but unsuccessfully to find grounds to hold the republican party at large responsible for brown's raid they felt obliged to report that they could not recommend any legislation to meet similar cases in the future since the invasion of virginia was not of the kind mentioned in the constitution but was simply the act of lawless ruffians under the sanction of no public or political authority Collamer of Vermont and Doolittle of Wisconsin, Republican members of the committee, in their minority report, considered the affair an outgrowth of the pro-slavery lawlessness in Kansas. Senator Douglas of Illinois, however, apparently with the object of still further setting himself right with the South and atoning for his Freeport heresy, made a long speech in advocacy of a law to punish conspiracies in one state or territory against the government, people, or property of another, once more quoting Lincoln's Springfield speech and Seward's Rochester speech as containing revolutionary doctrines. In the country at large, as in Congress, the John Brown raid excited bitter discussion and radically diverse comment, some execrating him as a deservedly punished felon, while others exalted him as a saint. His Boston friends, particularly, who had encouraged him with voice or money, were extravagant in their demonstrations of approval and admiration. On the day of his execution, religious services were held and funeral bells were tolled. The road to heaven, said Theodore Parker, is as short from the gallows as from a throne, perhaps also as easy. Some eighteen hundred years ago, said Thoreau, Christ was crucified. This morning, perchance, Captain Brown was hung these are the two ends of a chain which is not without its links emerson using a yet stronger figure had already called him a new saint waiting yet his martyrdom and who if he shall suffer will make the gallows glorious like the cross amid this conflict of argument public opinion in the free states gravitated to neither extreme it accepted neither the declaration of the great orator wendell phillips that the lesson of the hour is insurrection nor the assertion of the great lawyer charles o'connor that slavery is in its own nature as an institution beneficial to both races this chapter would be incomplete if we neglected to quote mr lincoln's opinion of the harper's ferry attempt his quiet and common-sense criticism of the affair pronounced a few months after its occurrence was substantially the conclusion to which the average public judgment has come after the lapse of a quarter of a century slave insurrections are no more common now than they were before the republican party was organized what induced the southampton insurrection twenty-eight years ago in which at least three times as many lives were lost as at harper's ferry you can scarcely stretch your very elastic fancy to the conclusion that Southampton was got up by black republicanism. In the present state of things in the United States, I do not think a general or even a very extensive slave insurrection is possible. The indispensable concert of action cannot be attained. The slaves have no means of rapid communication, nor can incendiary freemen, black or white, supply it. The explosive materials are everywhere in parcels, but there neither are nor can be supplied the indispensable connecting trains. Much is said by southern people about the affection of slaves for their masters and mistresses, and part of it at least is true. A plot for an uprising could scarcely be devised and communicated to twenty individuals before some one of them to save the life of a favorite master or mistress would divulge it this is the rule and the slave revolution in haiti was not an exception to it but a case occurring under peculiar circumstances 
the gunpowder plot of british history though not conducted with slaves was more in point in that case only about twenty were admitted to the secret and yet one of them in his anxiety to save a friend betrayed the plot to that friend and by consequence averted the calamity occasional poisonings from the kitchen and open or stealthy assassinations in the field and local revolts extending to a score or so will continue to occur as the natural results of slavery but no general insurrection of slaves as i think can happen in this country for a long time whoever much fears or much hopes for such an event will be alike disappointed john brown's effort was peculiar it was not a slave insurrection it was an attempt by white men to get up a revolt among slaves in which the slaves refused to participate in fact it was so absurd that the slaves with all their ignorance saw plainly enough it could not succeed that affair in its philosophy corresponds with the many attempts related in history at the assassination of kings and emperors an enthusiast broods over the oppression of a people till he fancies himself commissioned by heaven to liberate them he ventures the attempt which ends in little else than his own execution orsini's attempt on louis napoleon and john brown's attempt at harper's ferry were in their philosophy precisely the same the eagerness to cast blame on old england in the one case and on new england in the other does not disprove the sameness of the two things the aggravation of partisan temper over the harper's ferry incident found a manifestation in a contest over the speakership in the house of representatives as prolonged and bitter as that which attended the election of banks in the congressional elections of eighteen fifty eight following the lecompton controversy the democrats had once more lost control of the house of representatives there having been chosen one hundred thirteen republicans ninety-three administration democrats eight anti-lecompton democrats and twenty-three south americans as they were called that is members mainly from the slave states opposed to the administration this thirty-sixth congress began its session three days after the execution of john brown and the election of a speaker was the first work of the new house of representatives the republicans not having a majority made no caucus nomination but john sherman of ohio had the largest following on the first ballot and thereafter received their united efforts to elect him at this point a missouri member introduced a resolution declaring that the doctrines and sentiments of a certain book called the impending crisis of the south how to meet it purporting to have been written by one hinton r helper of north carolina are insurrectionary and hostile to the domestic peace and tranquillity of the country and that no member of this house who has endorsed and recommended it or the compend from it is fit to be speaker of this house this resolution was aimed at sherman who with some seventy republicans of the previous congress had signed a circular endorsing and recommending the book upon the general statement that it was an anti-slavery work written by a southerner the book addressed itself to non-slave-holding southern whites and was mainly made up of statistics but contained occasional passages of intolerant and vindictive sentiment against slaveholders whether it could be considered insurrectionary depended altogether on the pro-slavery or anti-slavery bias of the critic besides the author had agreed that the obnoxious passages should not be printed in the compendium which the republicans recommended in their circular when interrogated mr sherman replied that he had never seen the book and that i am opposed to any interference whatever by the people of the free states with the relations of master and slave in the slave states but the disavowal did not relieve him from southern enmity the fire-eaters seized the pretext to charge him with all manner of abolition intentions 
and by violent debate and the utterance of threats of disunion made the house a parliamentary and almost a revolutionary babble for nearly two months certain appropriations were exhausted and the treasury was in great need of funds efforts were made to adopt the plurality rule and to choose a speaker for a limited period but every such movement was resisted for the purpose of defeating sherman or rather through his defeat to force the north into unconditional submission to extreme pro-slavery sentiment the struggle nominally over an incident was in reality over a policy on january thirtieth eighteen sixty mr sherman withdrew his name and the solid republican vote was given to william pennington of new jersey another republican who on february first was elected speaker by one hundred seventeen votes four opposing members having come to his support the south gained nothing by the obstructionist policy of its members during the long contest extending through forty-four ballots their votes were scattered among many candidates of different factions while the republicans maintained an almost unbroken steadiness of party discipline on the whole the principal results of the struggle were to sectionalize parties more completely ripen southern sentiment toward secession and combine wavering voters in the free states in support of republican doctrines End of chapter 11. Recording by Denise Nordell, Modesto, California.